Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 105, A Conversation with Stacey Young. Stacey was diagnosed with a BRCA mutation and stage two breast cancer several years ago. And on today's episode, she shares her story of her diagnosis, treatment, and life after cancer. We speak about mental health, the importance of giving yourself space, feeling safe, and lessening guilt during that healing process. We speak about the challenges of treating young adults with cancer, which include issues such as sexual health, parenting, relationships, body image, fear of recurrence, and much more. Stacey's focus really is on the importance of self-love, and she uses this to really get through challenging times. And this theme, I feel, really resonates throughout the conversation. I think that this conversation really, really gets at the challenges of survivorship and the struggles and the hardships that people go through. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Stacey Young to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. Stacey, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are. Um, So I am a, I call myself a self-love and self-compassion enthusiast. Um, I am an engineering manager and also a mother. I have been focusing um, a lot in my life on my mental health and the trying to contribute to the mental health of those around me. And tell me a little bit about your cancer diagnosis and what that looked like. Um, So I found a lump in my breast. Well, I'm going to actually back it up to 2018 because I stopped getting my period and I thought that I was going through menopause and I was like, gosh, this is weird. You know, how old old were you at that time? Um, let's see, 2018, I was 34. Okay. And I attributed it to stress because my grandmother had just passed away and that had been a stressful experience for myself and my family. So I thought that that's the reason. And then, um, you know, when I spoke to my doctor, I had kind of said like, yeah, I think I'm going through menopause and she tested and she saw that, yes, I was in fact going through menopause. Um, I learned later that statistically a BRCA2 gene mutation carrier usually goes through menopause earlier. It's a, it's a common thing for a young adult like me, um, to go through that. So we didn't know that that was an indicator at the time. So I got my first breast lump in 2019 and I had that checked out. It was nothing. And then my second lump was characteristically completely different. And that one I had, I felt in August of 2020. 
my doctor ordered imaging, ordered imaging, and we found, and she said that it wasn't anything to, you know, biopsy or, or check further. So I just, you know, went on with my life and then, um, it grew and then it grew pretty quickly. So in December or maybe January, I noticed that it had grown substantially. And that's when I switched to a different place that ultimately biopsied and found my cancer. That must have been a really hard diagnosis on many levels and knowing that it had been growing. And unfortunately, we see so many that find themselves in a similar situation because Mm -hmm. there's this expectation, well, you're young, so this can't possibly happen to you. Um, What would you say to someone listening who's maybe feeling a lump right now and has been told, no, no, it's nothing? You know, what are some ways that you can advocate for yourself? So firstly, I think it's to consider the facility that you are at. Is it a, is it a medical factory or a medical care facility? And, you know, I found, I later found that this place had a record of doing, of, of misdiagnosing patients and, um, and that my case had been handled pretty unprofessionally right from the start. So, you know, it's really just about knowing you have to know exactly what you're looking for in that care. And a lot of people that are navigating it for the first time don't know. They don't know the questions to ask. They don't know, you know, if you don't feel right about something and you don't push for it, that could be the difference between, you know, stage one and stage two B. So it's really just about understanding that it is a risk regardless of, you know, thinking that we're too young and all of that. Um, the genetic testing for me kind of is one that's a part of it that I get kind of held up on because I wish I had been able to get that before. So I kind of had a clearer picture of what my risks were, but you know, it's one of those things you really can't dwell when it comes to the journey or else there's so many different hangups that you could, you know, find yourself with. So. Absolutely. I think that's why these conversations are so important because the more we talk about it, the more someone may listen. And, you know, as if they're a healthcare professional, the next time they have a young woman in their office, they're maybe mm-hmm. going to think a, a little bit more about evaluating that lump. So you were diagnosed and what stage were you given and what did that treatment, you know, look like? So, um, because my, so we didn't know if it was one or two tumors cause it was a very, um, abnormally shaped tumor. So we believed it to be below two centimeters. And so we decided to do a double mastectomy first. Once I got that BRCA2, um, confirmation, that's when I said, okay, the double mastectomy is the way I need to go you know, that was, it kind of made a difficult decision a little bit easier because, because obviously the BRCA2 carries such a heavy weight. And I'm really glad I did remove both, both of my breasts because I did have ductal carcinoma in situ in, in situ in the other breast. So I did a double mastectomy. We found it in two of my lymph nodes. I did two of my six lymph nodes that were removed. So I ended up doing 
16 rounds of ACT. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to get my reconstructive surgery in between chemotherapy and radiation. And then I did 28 rounds of radiation and that finished December 30th of 2021, 2021. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk a lot I mean, we know that treatment is hard physically, mentally. And I want to hear a little bit more about what your experience has actually been like after treatment, because it's a topic we don't talk too much about, you know, we give a lot, we give people a lot of advice and support about how to get through those 16 rounds of chemotherapy and radiation, but then you're done. And it's like, well, well now what? So um, I want to start that off by saying that the overall mental health process from diagnosis all the way to the, you know, where I am now, which I would be considered in survivorship mentally. Do I consider myself in survivorship? It's really hard to say, you know, they don't allow you to scan after everything's done. So you can't check, you can't really know. Um, and so that's another piece of it, but the, the overall mental health support is lacking both for the, um, both for the patient and for the caretakers of the patient. And there's still a big stigma around mental health. So that adds another layer, but um, I do think that, you know, they're quick to throw medications at things. I didn't feel that I had a ton of um, experiences where somebody was empathetic about my, you know, about my cancer journey. So that was really hard. I, I was, I was assigned a, you know, clinical psychiatrist or psychologist, and I ended up stopping those meetings because I just felt like it almost felt like she was checking off boxes when I was talking to her, there was just no connection or empathy at all. So, um, you know, that was really, that was really challenging, but I'm familiar with mental health. So that helped me. And I did throw myself into a lot of different breast cancer communities. Ultimately, that was where I felt that I was seen and heard. I'm glad that you were able to find a community and a space that has been helpful. But to go back to that clinical therapist and it not being helpful, what would have made it more helpful? You know, what were you, what did you need or what were you looking for in that time? there's, there's a big difference between people who legitimately understand the cancer experience and care about it from a patient perspective and the folks who were just doing their job. So it felt like she was doing her job and I needed somebody who could, who could again, helped me to feel seen and heard on a level that I didn't think that she was capable of, you know, I also have worked as a crisis counselor. So, you know, when you work in those spaces, you understand how to reach people and allow them to feel, to be vulnerable and to be afraid or to be whatever they need to be. And I just don't think that some people understand that again, from the cancer perspective specifically. I think that's a really important point. You know, there is a shortage of mental health professionals in the Mm -hmm. country. Insurance doesn't cover a lot, which is a huge, huge issue. And then now you have this narrow pool and now you're 
the people that are experienced in what someone has gone through and the trauma of cancer, I think is so narrow. Um, it's mm-hmm. so many people are not getting the help that they need. And I'm glad, I'm glad that the communities online exist. I think they're really helpful, but they're not a substitute for, you know, that one-on-one individualized treatment. Agreed. I would, I would say so. And, um, you know, I, I'm trying to understand it from other folks' perspectives as well. I often talk to women because it's a breast cancer community. I haven't um, yet worked with a man that's had breast cancer. So in the support groups that I've gone to, um, being a young adult with cancer is also another layer that you know, the young adults don't feel like we have the same, we don't have the same experience because I'm a mom. I was a wife at the time, you know, that was another part of it was that my marriage was ending at the same time as going through chemotherapy. So, you know, there were times that I just didn't feel safe and it became, it became very challenging to navigate the side effects of chemotherapy, navigate the emotions that I had trying to keep everything afloat. Um, because at one point during chemotherapy, I did go back to work as well because I didn't have enough, um, short-term disability and also just trying to keep up with the tasks of my house. Now I did have a lot of help and support. I did, but you know, it's, it's hard to be it's hard to be in that moment and be scared and be feeling very alone in your space. It's very, very true. I mean, I think you can have incredible support, but the challenges and the burdens, they're yours and you're carrying them alone, um, no matter how much help you have. And I think in, you know, being a mom and working or not working all the responsibilities, what you were going through with your marriage, that must've been very, very challenging. Oh, it was, it was very challenging. And you know, that's, it's a piece of, it's a piece of the mental health portion of cancer that I'm absolutely still processing. And I have to allow myself that space. So my mother was actually recently diagnosed with breast cancer. She did not have the BRCA2 mutation. So Um, she's going through the process now and, you know, I'm, I'm getting to see it from a different perspective now. And it's very much similar to what my experience was as far as the navigation at the very beginning, you know, um, the not hearing the same messages from the same, you know, from people who should be on the same page. It's a very complicated process. So, and we, we are thrown into it, you know, immediately. And we have to ask questions that we don't know to ask. We have to, and then on top of it, the, again, the people around us, if they haven't experienced cancer, cancer on a personal level, then they don't understand any of it. They don't understand any of it, unfortunately. I was talking to another podcast guest about this a couple of weeks ago, and she said something that was very, you know, kind of resonated and you know, we always, as I always tell people, I want you to get a second opinion. I want you to ask all your questions. And we were talking about this and she said, you know, when you're newly diagnosed and it's all being thrown at you, you just want someone to save your life. And so sometimes you're not thinking about, okay, well now I need a second opinion and a third opinion because you are fearful. You're 
you're afraid. And these people are saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, and so we do it. And I think just being thrown into it and you don't have any time to process mm-hmm. leaves you, I think, reeling for a long time, right? And processing it later, which has its whole, whole other, you know, issues with that. Yeah. You basically learn that, you know, you have to be subject to this process of stopping cancer from growing. And so in a way you become a prisoner in your own body. It's, you have to experience all of it and there's nothing that you can do to change that. Um, so, and of course, everything comes with these side effects that it, it's almost as if you're grieving a hundred things at once. Yeah. And, you know, of course you can't prepare everybody for all of the side effects that they're going to feel. Cause you're just not sure how it's going to affect them. I would say that there are some pretty big consistencies with certain things that, um, that I would have preferred to be have made, to be made more aware of, you know, um, and to have some type of support network again, as, especially as a young mother, you know, a professional that had to continue to keep the balls in the air somehow. And somebody that was navigating a toxic, you know, relationship situation as well. Can I ask what are some of those things that you think would have been helpful to be made aware of? I didn't have a single person talk to me about sexual health. Wow. Um, I didn't have anybody who I feel like, like, again, you know, I was lucky because I believe both of my kids were already in therapy at the time. So it worked out pretty well for us, but you know, you know, nobody's checking in to see like, how are your kids doing? Are you, you know, are you okay with the tasks that you have as a mother? Now, I don't know how they would be able to help, but if you start asking the questions, then you can absolutely come up with a resolution once you've got enough opinions, you know? Um, So it's just that, it's just that further level of support for the mental health of the patient, because correct me if I'm wrong, I feel that studies have shown from what I've seen that you know, somebody that's in a better place mentally has a better likelihood of just getting through it and it not being quite as traumatizing. You know, it's very easy to stay there. It's very easy to stay there once you're, once you've gone through everything. No, I, I agree. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, young adults with cancer have completely different needs and challenges ranging from, as you've talked about sexual health, parenting, relationship, financial toxicity. I mean, the list, body image, I mean, the list goes on and on. Body image is a big one. It's, you know, and it's huge. And sometimes I think, you know, we can't always help, but I think acknowledging that what you're experiencing is common and directing you to resources or saying, you know, this is something that is going to be a struggle. I think just validating you know, because we can't always fix the things. I think cancer comes in and takes and takes and takes. And, um, but unfortunately what, you, what I'm hearing from you is not a unique experience, especially if you have, um, if you're being treated in a place that maybe doesn't see a lot of young adults with cancer, right. Or it's, it's new for them. I would agree with that statement wholeheartedly. 
Um, I have a group of women who I think there's seven of us maybe, and we text message, but we've also met out a couple of times and we were actually just talking today and we were discussing the lack of support around the young adult cancer experience. And I think that's across the board. It's, it can't possibly just be with breast cancer. So, um, you know, again, it's that knowing, knowing about cancer, cancer advocacy in its, you know, at its very core, because you have to know to check before, before you can, and you have to know to check and to advocate for yourself if you think something's not right. And then once you are diagnosed, having some kind of navigation or some kind of both mentally and, and with the amount of terms and appointments and tests that are needed, just a framework. There's no, there's nothing in cancer care that provides that for the patient. Mm -hmm. And I understand that many of the, you know, everything looks different depending on what the cancer is based on what the pathology is for whatever tumor they're testing then you go from there, but there is, there can be a framework around that that can help. I think everybody, not just young adults specifically. No, I agree. I think that, you know, when you don't have a plan, you're kind of free falling and then you do have a plan, but everything happens very quickly. So then you don't have time to, again, you know, process all of that. What kind of put going forward now, you know, to this period that you're in now, you know, how are you dealing with your mental health? You know, how are you giving that space and the time to process everything that has happened to you? So I do have a therapist that I see um, three times a month. And I also am on Wellbutrin. So I, uh, the lowest dose of antidepressant and um, I was prescribed Ativan. I don't typically take it. Um, I call... <laughs> So I have a lot of terms, like I, I assign terms to things. So one of my, um, terms that I used during cancer care was getting back to zero. And that meant getting back to almost like homeostasis. So, you know, when I had my double mastectomy, of course, I had all these medications that I was taking and getting back to feeling okay, um, took me some time because of the medications. And so I would also assign that term to my mental health, getting back to zero. Sometimes it takes more. Sometimes it takes less. Sometimes I have to allow myself to sit in bed and cry. And sometimes I can just pick myself right up and, um, be an advocate for myself and for others. A lot of people tell me that they struggle with giving themselves that permission to sit and cry and to avoid or the permission to say, yes, there's a stigma against antidepressants, but I need it and I'm going to take it. Can you share kind of what has helped you kind of get in that space where you're okay? And because I think that can help somebody else who's struggling. So the first thing I have to say is that um, I have been on a kind of, I had sort of an awakening in 2019 and I realized that what had been missing from my life equation was self-love. And so that led me to, um, when I was diagnosed, I looked at myself in the mirror and I told myself that I would love me 
every inch of me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet throughout this entire experience. That made all the difference that I had made that promise to myself. So in choosing to love myself every day, I love identifying and processing my emotions as well. Cause I recognize that holding that in can be very toxic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen it have many physiological effects. So I knew that, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to push anything down. So I only spent time with my support network who allowed me that space and allowed me the time to process it. Um, It's part of the reason why I ended my relationship because I didn't have space. I didn't have space. I didn't feel safe. And these are things that are major components of the healing process. So it was an easy decision at that time. Now I recognize that I can't do this all myself. I do need help from both people who, from a support networks of people who understand the experience from, from going through it, as well as knowing who in my personal circle allows me the space that I need to continue on this journey and to continue to fight and not fight, but to get through the many complexities of the mental health process of cancer. It's really, really important. There is, again, there's just so much stigma around taking care of our mental health. And I think, I think everybody needs a therapist in some way, shape or form. Agreed. Because there is a lot to process and you can do it on your own. And, you know, as an oncologist, I'm not trained to help you in in that way. Um, but I, we, we see, you know, we just see so much stigma on people struggling and understanding they need a therapist and maybe they need a medication, maybe they don't, but reluctance or this fear of judgment that's out there. Right. Exactly. And you also have, <clears throat> not only do you have many patients going through this process alone, but you also have folks who then have guilt on top of it. Mm-hmm. And you have people who are minimizing their experience because they see a harder experience and it's all valid though. It's not, it's not valid to think that you should compare your experience to anybody's, but it is valid to allow yourself the space to feel the feelings you were diagnosed with cancer. There's many feelings associated with that. There is a before and after Mm -hmm. there's never a you know, I beat it and then it's gone. Yeah. And I, I think like that, that, you know, one survivor's guilt is real. You know, how many people tell me, oh, I'm lucky. I'm like, no, the real luck would have been in not being diagnosed with this in the first place. And I think you can feel grateful that it wasn't bigger or that, you know, it's this stage, it hasn't spread, but you can also feel angry and upset and all the emotions around what happened. And I think to speak to this, I beat it, you know, I get so angry when the media does these things, you know, about, you know, all of these words, the strong and the fight and this battle terminology. And it it just creates so much shame and blame in the person who's not on TV because the people on TV have all the resources available to them. Right. Well, and that's, 
you know, that's obviously another complexity of cancer is access to care and access to second opinions. You know, we're lucky now because telemed is much more common. So if you have a phone, you can have a second opinion, but I, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's romanticized in a way, you know, they need to hear your tragic story and then you become a warrior, but we, we joke in the cancer community that those are all muggle terms. You know, we, we call them cancer (laughs) muggles. It's, it's the folks who, so part of this process is if you are out there with your cancer, because some people only go through it in private. Mm -hmm. And I've met many people that have, but for the folks who share that they're going through cancer, it is not about you when you're telling somebody that you have cancer. It does become people react based on what their perceptions are. And many of the time, many times it's a personal experience that they're sharing with you. And bearing that in mind is a lot easier because you begin to hear the same things. You know, um, everybody just wants to feel like they're helping. And that's not always what's happening, (laughs) unfortunately. But, you know, if you if you approach it knowing that it means they mean well when they're you know, suggesting that you, you know, stand on one foot in a full moon and drink vinegar or something, then you just say, oh, thanks for that. And then you go on your way and you don't do any of it. (laughs) So it's funny that you mentioned it because at all my, in every single one of my new patient consultations, what I tell people is if you're going to be public about your diagnosis and treatment, whether that's on Facebook or social, you know, however, you're going to share that that be prepared for all of the unsolicited advice that you didn't ask for, but that comes, you know, from a good place. And just say, my doctor said, no, blame it on me, or just say, thank you and and move on. But um, I agree, there is, there is a lot out there. People will call me all the time. My best friend, sister's cousin said, you got to try this supplement, you know, or whatever it is. And again, they're coming, they're coming from a good place. But yeah, when you're public, you're this, this all is, out there. Yes. I was very public with my experience. Um, so because I was feeling neglected emotionally at home, I, as I said, I joined support groups, but specifically while I was going through chemotherapy, AC chemotherapy, um, I used to sit in my backyard and broadcast on Reddit. So, you know, when I would talk to like 60 people, they would just be kind of in the chat and we'd be talking about life. As I say, I'm a self-love and self-compassion enthusiast. So I'm often, you know, trying to plant the seeds of people understanding self-love and beginning that journey of setting those boundaries around their love and their time, recognizing the fear within them that's creating circumstances and the love within them that can, you know, do more. So and healing trauma, you know, it's all of that. It's all tied in. So I was out there and I was just talking to people. And then I ended up, um, one day having a lot of people that tuned in, I think there were like 6,000 or more watchers. And then I had people reach out to me personally and check on me and just, 
in these moments that I really needed the love, they were there. They don't even know how much they were helping me because I was experiencing so much pain in my personal life, both from cancer and my relationship. So, um, you know, being able to identify what we need is really important. And again, that starts with that loving journey of listening to your heart and your mind and being able to identify what's going to help you move forward, what's going to help you adapt, what's going to help you get through this without really collapsing and not being able to move forward. And I, I think all of that is is spot on. How, but how do you, and maybe I'm curious to see how you did it. Like, how do you figure out what you need? You know, is it just taking time to sit with the feelings and kind of see how things, how you feel, or is it, is there something that worked for you? Cause I hear a lot. Well, I don't know. I know what this, I know what I don't need, but I'm not sure what I do need or how to get what I need. Right. Well, you know, as you said, I think everybody can benefit from therapy, number one. Um, but I didn't have therapy when I started to develop myself. I only knew that what I was doing was making me physically feel ill. So once I recognized that there wasn't enough, I wasn't you know, loving myself enough, and I was living in a state of fear, then I set boundaries around the things in my life that were bringing me down. But I would not have known to do that if I didn't journey into that world and see that, okay, this is why I'm feeling depressed. This is why I'm feeling anxious. These uncomfortable feelings are affecting me and the people around me. And nothing is working for me. So I started to step into that world, you know, podcasts, social media, YouTube, there's many different places where you can find consistent messages, even movies, even entertainment. Once you have your light switched on, you know, who's, you know, that who is trying to get that message across. It's very, very, um, obvious. For example, Lin-Manuel Miranda, that was a person who had a really big impact on me in those early days. Um, I started listening to Hamilton and my daughter was also really enjoying Mary Poppins too at the time or whatever it is, Mary Poppins returns or something. And all of his songs carry the same message. And it's that you have this light inside of you and that, you know, the status quo doesn't have to be what it is, you can challenge that and you can create the world that you know exists if you love yourself, if you follow that light within your heart and you follow people who have that light, then your energy starts to notice the people who are in that space. And then you just learn from them. I love that. And he, his songs are powerful. I mean, beyond anything. Agreed. Tell me about being a mom during this time. So I have a five-year-old and a 16-year-old now. So at the time I had a four-year-old and a 15-year-old, um, nothing changed. <laughs> I still had to be there for them. Um, 
you know, and I was holding myself accountable in ways that I needed to, um, you know, in the midst of going through cancer, my relationship with my children was really separate, but I also had to acknowledge that their mother was going through cancer and their parents were getting separated. So they had multiple things that they were trying to navigate. And, um, you know, there were days when I messed up and I broke down. And then there were other times that I knew to ask other people to help show up. And there were times that I showed up. So it was, again, being able to identify what is needed in that moment and moving forward with that action. You know, we know that younger kids, I mean, they have different needs than older kids, right? When someone gets diagnosed with cancer, they don't have access to the internet. They're not asking those kind of questions. So tell me about your oldest and, you know, questions and discussions that you had about your diagnosis, hair loss, all of that. So it was actually pretty interesting because my daughter, when she was, I think it was 11, um, she shaved her head for St. Baldrick's. So she had actually gone through the process of regrowing hair. It made me feel a little bit more comfortable because she had been brave enough to do that. And we had cousins who also would shave their heads every year. One of them is female. So after my first uh, round of chemo, we all got together and made it a big event and whoever wanted to could help shave my head. So my cousin shaved it. Um, my husband shaved it and my daughter shaved it. So, you know, being a part of that process and making it not this somber event, I think was really helpful for me and my family. And then it worked. It, I, I don't want to say it worked out because I did get an infection and had to be in the hospital for four days, no. but it came at a time when all my hair was falling out. So, um, so I just would be in the hospital and, you know, take their towels and get the hair out. So they didn't really have to watch that process. And that was nice. Otherwise, um, you know, we, we have a really tight family and a really tight community around us that our daughters could be supported by other folks as well. You know, my sister and her family are a big part of that. My mother and my father are a big part of that. And um, as well as, you know, some people from my husband's family. So having that was huge for us because the girls could still have a fairly normal summer, you know, um, outside of what was going on at home. I think that's important, right? Bringing in all the people that are part of your life and being honest about what's going on. I think, especially in that in, in for teenagers, because that's what they really need at that moment. Right, exactly. And, you know, obviously that's not an easy thing to navigate even when you don't have cancer. Yeah. So um, I've been trying to, I've been trying to be there and do what I can and you know, show up the ways that I need to show up. It's, I feel that, you know, having the um, relationship that I had where it is now has helped me to open up more and be myself and to honor, you know, who I am and who I realized I turned into in that situation. So that's changed my relationship with my daughter and, hopefully it's allowing us to grow. 
And have you ever talked to her? I mean, do you know if she's kind of going on the internet and Googling cancer? And like, have you talked to her about, you know, what it means and all of that? And then the BRCA mutation, have, have you talked to them about that? Um, I've, I've talked a little bit about the BRCA mutation. I think she knows that she has to get tested when she's 21. She has cancer on both sides of her family. Her, her, um, her father's mother had it too. So she does understand that, you know, we aren't, unfortunately, we aren't strangers to cancer. Um, while I was with my husband, his mother, we lost his mother to melanoma. So, um, we experienced that with, the family and, you know, the, both the diagnosis, the process of, you know, again, going through that process of them, you know, having to go to all the appointments, them having to learn this new language and, um, choose care, choose treatment, all of that. So my daughter had experienced that. And she had also experienced her, a grandmother going through breast cancer 10 years before I was diagnosed. So it wasn't new to her. And, you know, I think that, um, I never had the discussion kind of about like what could happen, but I didn't really feel the need to do that because, you know, you know, that cancer can kill you. I didn't need to say that. And I wouldn't want to, it's, you know, it's, you know, you know, that that's a risk, you know, that that's a possibility, unfortunately. So, um, I never felt the need to address that because we had already experienced that as a family. Thank you for sharing that. And, and kind of one last question about parenting and actually more, more for you now, you know, thinking about that fear of recurrence, you know, we know that it can come back how do you, how do you process that? And how do you deal with those? If, if those emotions creep up in there? Well, um, at the beginning of the cancer journey, again, I, I made an important point to realize what I can control and what I can't control or yes, can control and can't control. So being able to identify that right from the start was helpful. And now I can do things for my well-being. I didn't feel, I didn't feel, I don't think many of the feelings that a lot of people feel on the day that I was diagnosed with cancer this year. I was so proud of myself. I was tremendously proud of the habits that I've changed, how far I've come, you know, how I was proud of the family and the friends network that I've had around me. Um, it was a number of different things that just made me feel so much love. So that being said, um, I think that for me personally, it's just something that I would not be able to control. You know, I'll do what I can. If it's enough, wonderful. If it's not, okay, then what's the next step? I think that's really, that's really powerful. Thank you. And so before we wrap up, what does life look like now for you? What cool things are you doing? So um, I'm really working to build a social media presence. Um, you know, I'm learning a lot about social media and I'm kind of, I've been since I started Reddit broadcasting last year and I 
realized that I really enjoyed it and had a knack for reaching people. Um, I say that I'm changing the world one conversation at a time. You know, I often go right from <laughs> like A to Z with people. Um, you know, I ask these questions that I'm curious about and I find that being vulnerable kind of gives people opportunities to feel vulnerable and validated in whatever their journey is, whether it's in the oncology space and not. So it's really just supporting people in understanding themselves, understanding what, you know, living life from a loving perspective looks like both for yourself and for others, being able to decipher what opinions are about the other person and what opinions are meant to actually help you grow. You know, it's a number of different things. So I've been enjoying learning in both the online space as well as the mental health space. And I plan to continue that. That's amazing. I am in the process of creating a brand and kind of figuring out where I want to place my energy first. I am being pulled in an oncology direction for sure. Um, as I said, many of us suffer in silence. Many of the people who experience cancer suffer in silence. As a matter of fact, I have this person who reached out to me in my inbox of Reddit, in my DMs of Reddit. And um, it's an older gentleman, my parents' age, you know, married for however many years, has adult children. And he is a stage four cancer patient. And his entire life, he's never been able to open up about his experience of just life in general. And he also feels the same way now that he is dying from cancer. And um, he worked in government. He worked in, um, uh, gosh, I think he worked in some level of law enforcement and went up in the ranks and, you know, did a lot of stuff after 9-11. There were so many things that he experienced in his life. And he said, now that now he is thinking about the things that he wasn't able to process back then. I feel so grateful that somebody feels safe enough with me to be able to discuss these things that are the most personal things, you know, what's in our hearts when we are in quiet. And when we're in silence, many people can't even stand to be there. Yeah. So if he can die, knowing that he got that out and knowing that somebody out there was able to validate him, how beautiful is that? So it's just, I have chills. Just listen to that. <laughs> Me too. Oh. It was funny because I hadn't heard from him for a while and I was so worried that something had happened. And then he sent me a message on Easter Sunday and I was so happy to hear from him. So, I, you know, I, and there's, and there's so many stories like that in the work that I've been doing. So I know that I'm headed in the right direction. You're, you're definitely headed in the right direction. And, you know, this is the power of social media, right? How, like the ability to build these incredible relationships and connections that you would have never had the power to do outside of these communities. And, you know, when people talk about the negatives of social media, but there's so many, there's so many positives. 
I completely agree with you. Um, I've been in the telecommunication space now for 20 years. And I started with when people were sending their first text messages to now. And I see what's coming in the future. We are identifying areas that are a problem. And unfortunately, that's what requires our attention right now because it is a huge invasion of privacy. Yeah. And it's important to hold people accountable for that. But you have to have enough awareness around it and you have to have enough advocacy around that. And you don't quite have that right now. However, I agree with you. The connections that you can make on social media, they have changed my life. They helped pull me from a place that was the darkest place that I've ever been multiple times because I didn't feel alone. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the pieces of advocacy for mental health is that if you were to share with one group what you're struggling with, there would at least be one person that would say me too. Mm-hmm. So we have to continue to have these conversations. We have to continue to hold space for people to be vulnerable, to not use shame and blame. Those are, those are the antithesis of the things that we want, you know, for people to be able to love to people for, to, for people to be able to see each other as human and to see that we are all connected. We are all very similar. We all have a story. We all have things we're grappling with. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. I was, I was reading your material before um, this meeting. I think it was last night and the night before. And I hope that you realize what a gift you are to the cancer community, because we need more people in your spaces to really care again, to provide medical care instead of just doing a job. Well, and I will say that social media has transformed how I am as a doctor, because I didn't know any of this until, you know, I joined social media because that's where the patients are. And I'm very passionate about physicians being present online because you got to know what people are feeling and talking about and experiencing, especially in oncology. And, you know, when, when you kind of become, and I'm not going to say part of this community because I very much am not in it. I, I kind of find like I'm standing on the edges kind of like, you know, I, I haven't been affected. I mean, personally, I've been affected by cancer through my family, you know, but not um, myself. But when, you know, when I post these things and I post them because I have conversations in the office about things that I, you know, and I, I think that they will resonate with others and they do. And then you realize that this one conversation I had with someone, if all these other people go, wait a second, I'm feeling that way, right? Then the power to have these conversations is, important, but it's, it's a two-way street. I think it's hands down made me a better oncologist. When I look back to where I was a couple of years ago, I it's, it's completely different. Even the language that I use. And I, and I, now I try to tell other people like, well, don't, don't use that word. Let's, let's, Oh, thank you. (laughs) Let's not not say that. Um, But again, it's just by being online and seeing what people are, what they're feeling and experiencing. And so it's been, it's been life-changing for me as well. 
Yeah, I would say same for me, you know, of course, I recognize that the cancer experience is very different for everybody, but I wouldn't know, you know, exactly what so many people have been going through if I wasn't out there looking for it. And I wasn't out there asking questions, you know, I'm always probably asking too many questions. Most people in my life would probably say that, but, you know, I'm a very analytical person. I want to tear things apart and understand them in every way. And obviously my cancer experience has been, it's, it's been the exact same. Yeah. But that's how we grow, right? When we ask that we don't accept what's just in front of us. Correct. You know, I, I tell people that I'm living outside of the box these days. I live outside of my comfort zone. Um, and that will ultimately lead me to the next stage of my life. Do I know where it is? No, but you know, something like this, spending this time with you, I know that it's meaningful and I know that it can hopefully create a level of awareness where somebody didn't have it before. Exactly. Stacey, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. I hope that we can work together again in some capacity. It was so great to talk to you today. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I think that we cannot talk about survivorship enough. The more that we talk about it, the more that we bring attention to the issues that survivors struggle with, the more that we can start to address them and help patients. You can find Stacey on Instagram at stace.babes. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. And I love hearing from you and hearing your thoughts, your feedback, advice, comments, all of that. If you have a moment, I am always honored if you can leave a rating and review for the show on Apple iTunes as that really is the best way to bring it to listeners and continue to help the podcast grow. Thank you all for listening and I will see you soon. 